Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. As we add the voice now of Michael Zeldin, an important part of our coverage. The former federal prosecutor is with us here. And Michael, I'm glad to see you. Um, I'd like to get back to this idea of overreach or overstepping whether the special counsel did, in your opinion, pull a Comey, as some are saying here, by very personally describing Joe Biden, going beyond the actions that involved the handling of classified documents. I think so. Remember, I was an independent counsel. I investigated George Herbert Walker sure. Bush. And we submitted a report as well. And we were very careful to just give facts. We weren't trying to put our minds in those of the jury and say, well, if we were to go to trial, some might think that. Some might. That was not part of our purview. Ours was, what was the evidence? And on that evidence, what was the basis of our decision to charge or not charge? And I think that her could have done that much more clinically than he did. I think that he was trying to explain to Merrick Garland why, in the face of evidence of willful retention and dissemination, he was not going to recommend charging. And so he said, look, here's why I'm not recommending charging. So he's trying to do the right thing. But I think that he just overstepped his bounds of reporting when he talks about age in a political context when he has to know, because he comes out of the Trump White House when he has to know that age is the biggest issue, the biggest hurdle that Biden faces. So to stick that in there, I thought was just unfortunate, even if his intention was not political. Interesting. You would know the answer to this. When the special counsel, or as you described yourself, independent counsel, comes out with this report, is there not an editing uh, opportunity here for the attorney general, for instance, in this case, would Merrick Garland be able to say, hey, you might need to walk this back, this personal stuff here? Or is that the purpose of a special or independent counsel uh, where the attorney general has no hands on the final product? It's a great question. Under the regulations, the special counsel submits the report in confidence to the AG, and then the AG decides what to do with it. Now, what did we see in the Mueller investigation? Mueller submitted his report to Barr. Barr gave a summary of it, which was a bit misleading. Mueller was very upset, and then they ultimately released the final report. Garland, to overcome that problem, has said, look, what you give me is what's going to go out unless there's you know, a, a factual error. You know, you said two plus two equals five. We'll make you say it equals mm -hmm. four. But otherwise, we're sending this out. I don't want to have any appearance like Barr did of putting my finger on the scale. And so that's what we what that's what happened here. And I think that if we're a normal case, this report may not have seen the light of day in its current form. Well, could we then accuse the attorney general of being too careful? Well, you know, some are already doing that. People, if you read yeah, the are. Internet, are accusing him of, of exactly that, of slow walking the January 6th investigation and picking her, uh, a political Republican by background, a, a capable attorney yeah. by all uh, measures. But why is it they say that when 
a Democrat is being investigated, we get these Republican investigators. And when a Republican is investigated, we get a Republican investigator. Why is it that way? And so he's <laughs> going to get criticized. He's going to get criticized. But I do think when you get down to the bottom of this, her intentions may have been honorable, but I think his choice of language was unfortunate and particularly unfortunate in the context of a political campaign. Let's get to the language uh, involved and, and the findings uh, that involved classified documents themselves. Totally irresponsible. Uh, I, I lifted first and foremost off this report, but also willful retention. Doesn't that suggest that Joe Biden is guilty of the very same thing that they're charging Donald Trump with? I know there's a separate obstruction layer for Donald Trump here because of moving documents and evading that retrieval process. But if willful retention uh, is taken at face value, that means Joe Biden knew he was doing something wrong, along with the sharing of classified information, no? Yeah, the report is a little bit confusing. Sometimes they call it willful retention, and sometimes they say it's ambiguous whether there was willfulness. But the bottom line is he said he willfully retained and disseminated classified information. Now, Biden takes issue with whether it was classified information. A lot of it was notebooks or diaries that Biden kept. And he said those are private property, not classified information in ordinary classification. But, you know, that's really not a good answer. The answer is mm -hmm. that he retained, he purposely retained, and he disseminated. And I think that had Trump done just that, and then given all the stuff back, he would not have been charged. And that's why I think that he, Biden and Trump align on the retention and dissemination, but where they separate is, as you said, on the obstruction. And is that obstruction that got Trump indicted? Because otherwise yes. I think these cases have similarities. They're, they're, the scope is different. Trump had you know hundreds of documents and Biden had 12 or something. But it is really about obstruction that differentiates the two of them. And her, to his credit, made plain that this is not the same. This is not an apples to apples comparison. Trump to Biden is apples to oranges, especially because of volume and destruction and obstruction. So you do agree then with the decision to not file charges in this case, obviously. I do. But in some sense, you know, in some you know, strange way, Biden might have been better off getting charged than than mm -hmm. than not getting charged. At least he would have a forum to say, I'm not infirm. I'm, I have my mental acuity. But I think <laughs> to the last conversation you had, he's got to be out on the campaign trail. He has to be talking every day to overcome this notion that he's too old and too infirm. He's got to be like Harry Truman in 1948. He's got to be on a whistle stop every day out there so people can see his <laughs> mental acuity. Otherwise, I don't think he overcomes yeah. this. And start doing push-ups in the Rose Garden first thing in the yeah. morning. Uh, Michael Zeldin, I have to ask you about what's happening around Donald Trump as well, because yesterday was supposed to be the day we reported on uh, oral arguments before the Supreme Court in this 14th Amendment case. Uh, this has to do with ballot access, of course, separate from the presidential immunity ruling that may well get to the Supreme Court. That's, uh, that's something that we can talk about separately. But when it comes to this idea of barring Donald Trump from the ballot for, quote unquote, engaging in insurrection, as we, we fumble around the definitions of these words that we're using, what's the difference in the eyes of the law between a riot and an insurrection, Michael? 
Well, an insurrection is organized and a riot is spontaneous. I think the language of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, says engage in an insurrection against the Constitution. It doesn't say engage in armed warfare against the government. And theoretically, hmm. an insurrection against the Constitution is trying to prevent the orderly transfer of power. I mean, the bedrock principle of our Constitution is the orderly transfer of power. And the whole baked electors scheme and all that stuff, I think, is easily seen as an attempt to disrupt the con you know the constitution to yeah doesn't have to be violence it can be just the fake electors scheme but we didn't get there in the court yesterday and the court seems that it's gonna rule that you need congressional action to give effect to this section so that's self-executing and they're never going to get to the question of whether this was an insurrection or a riot or whether it has to be violence or whether it could be just an attempt to um violate the constitutional transfer of powers rules. Yeah. I always learn something when we talk to Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor. He's been there as a special counsel as well. Michael, it's great to see you. Thanks, as always, uh, for the help and have a great weekend. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It's pretty remarkable stuff, Joe, to see the S&P 500 north yeah. of 5,000, a president of the United States, unlike the previous administration, who doesn't seem immediately to want to flex on it. No. And you know, Donald Trump just last week said that the stock market is a record because his polls against Biden are so good <laughs> that investors gonna... are projecting that I will win and sure. drive the market up. Uh, it's funny. I checked no tweet for, at the POTUS account, at least not yet, yeah. uh, unless it was just now while you were talking on S&P 5000. But it is interesting. I don't, I'm not going to open this whole can of worms right now. I'm not going to bring up the Super Bowl predictor. Maybe I will mm. later. Uh, but... History does show us the stock market in the long term outperforms under Democratic administrations, which is why that whole conversation is really funny. I mean, if you're looking, we're a data company that's just that's ir right. irrefutable, uh, not to say that it, we wouldn't have rally time in another Trump term. Well, and it's interesting to see a market performing like this one is at the same time where voter sentiment clearly it's is still true. not great around the economy or around President Biden's approval of it. He continually gets low marks on the economy issue, but he also continually pulls poorly on something he cannot change, which is the fact that he is 81 years old and has at least a perception problem when it comes to his mental acuity. And we've seen that on full display over the last 24 hours. Boy, that's for sure. What a display last night, uh, which is where we have to bring in Josh Wingrove, Bloomberg White House correspondent. It's great to see you, sir. Uh, I can't imagine the feeling in the West Wing this morning after uh, what was a very emotionally charged experience, this news conference. His anger apparently was uh, enough that he felt a need to stand in front of reporters. Do you have a sense of whether the press office, the communications office, wanted to see that happen? Uh, I think the people around Joe Biden that we've been talking to think that it was always the case. He's yeah. ticked about this report, not just the mention of his son, mm -hmm. which is always a third rail if you want to get under that Biden's skin. Uh, but more broadly, just what they view as political commentary and her going over his skis uh, and not sort of sticking to calling balls and strikes. And mm -hmm. so they wanted to get Biden out there. 
Some people were talking today, wish he had not turned around and come back to the lectern. His last answer, once he did, of course, was a long explanation of the situation in Gaza, but of course included referring to the Egyptian president, Sisi, as the president of Mexico. And that, of course, is combined with the report, thrust all this into the system here. Mm -hmm. Democrats, uh, I'm trying to be polite here, have an occasional propensity to panic in a way that Republicans maybe don't. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, we're seeing some of that, I think, a bit right now. But I think it's important to bear in mind, like, there is no serious challenge to Biden as the nominee. There is right. no public effort to oust him as the nominee. The machinery to do so would be difficult, if not impossible, at this stage. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris is standing by him. Every top Democrat not named Dean Phillips is standing by him. So for now, this is a question that is circulating in the minds of voters and quietly among Democrats and publicly among Republicans. But I think we should be cautious not to overstate that there's any kind of serious sure, push yeah. at this stage to make Joe Biden not the nominee. Every sign right. is he wants to be the nominee and wants to run again. Well, and so it becomes a question of how best he can effectively campaign. Yeah. In, in seeking not just, you know, ultimately the confer- confirmation of the nomination, but a, a second term. And it's worth keeping in mind here. I mean, Joe and I are broadcasters. I've said things on air that I don't mean. I've said murders and acquisitions <laughs> on more occasion than one. Donald Trump confused Nikki one. Haley and, and Nancy Pelosi yeah. just recently. Other people do this. This is not unusual for someone to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. It just all adds up to an optics problem specifically. When it's optics like this around facts you can't change, you're on camera saying these things, you're in writing in a DOJ report calling into question your ability to to recall to your memory, Mm -hmm. and you're 81 and you can do nothing about that number. What's the spin for the White House and the campaign? Well, first of all, murders and acquisitions would be a great story. So, you <laughs> it know, made it, it in a blooper yeah, reel I mean, once, actually. Uh, uh, Is there a terminal <laughs> command for that? <laughs> right. there, there are two schools of thought here. One is that Biden is going to kind of campaign a little bit around the press, which is not uncommon in today's era. He's going to sit down for more friendly conversations, podcast this, like, this and that, as opposed to sitting down for a lengthy interview with a newspaper, mm-hmm. with Bloomberg, with mm-hmm. a network, turning down the Super Bowl. Uh, Mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, So that is the strategy they've been running. The other school of thought, which kind of actually got a little bit more juice in the last 24 hours, paradoxically, is, for lack of a better phrase, the let Joe be Joe camp. Mm -hmm. Get him out there. You know, these people around him who believe that he is totally in great shape, you know, who think he's so sharp, who say that in private meetings his recall is remarkable, uh, his grasp of these complex foreign situations in particular is remarkable. That's what Democratic aides and allies of him tell you. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, of course, is, okay, so why don't you let him do that more in public? And so I think that that is the tension that they're going with right now. Wow. If we're going to have gaffes, do you have them when you're flooding the field with Joe Biden talking about stuff that they want him to talk about? Or do you claw back, have, you know, more microdosing of Biden, and mm-hmm. therefore any one gaffe will, will stand out a little bit? Is this the coolest guy in the room? When does Josh Wingrove Always. get his own show? I could listen to you all day long. <laughs> Microdosing. Yeah. Micro, I mean, Microdosing Josh Wingrove just today. Just introduced uh-huh. microdosing Joe Biden yeah, yeah. on uh, Balance of Power. <laughs> Thank you for coming to see us. You're Thank wonderful. You. Uh, Bloomberg White House correspondent Josh Wingrove, uh, the stylings of Wingrove. 
here on Bloomberg TV and Radio. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines. Uh, as we put a finer point on this, Kaylee, as you mentioned, we spoke with the Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. Yesterday, we heard from her mm-hmm. a little bit earlier in the program. Daniel Fried uh, is with us now, uh, former ambassador to Poland, former assistant secretary of state for Europe, to get a better sense of the needs uh, for Ukraine, but also the timeline, mm-hmm. because it looks like this isn't going to happen very quickly. And Ambassador, it's great to have you back with us. Uh, appreciate your time as you look at a potential slow roll here on Capitol Hill. How worried should Ukraine be about being left alone, abandoned by its Western allies? Being abandoned by its Western allies is not going to happen. The Europeans are standing with Ukraine. The question is whether the United States will abandon Ukraine, which would be a an appalling defeat for American interests. Not since the years before World War II will the U.S. have failed to support security and freedom in Europe, as is apparently what some in Congress want. But yesterday's vote was a piece of good news. That's 67 senators in support of assistance to Ukraine. That's something to work with. The faster it goes through, the better off American interests will be. Well, as we think about American interests, this was something that the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. spoke with Joe and I about last night. She essentially tried to characterize Ukrainian interests as very aligned with American interests, that basically all of this is about democracy. And just take a listen, if you will, Ambassador, to some of what she told us uh, in this conversation. Here she is. Uh, We have to also show that we can stay the course. And again, today, even though the discussions were difficult, even though it's an election year, of course, you know, there are all in every country internal issues that needs to be addressed. But I was so happy to see that, uh, you know, it was a very strong bipartisan support and uh, not yet a final, of course, just the first step in the right direction. So referring there, Ambassador Freed, to the step the Senate took yesterday, the procedural vote uh, to move forward the supplemental package that would include aid for Ukraine. But to to go back to the point you were making about how Western allies are not going to turn away from Ukraine because some of those Western allies are European countries, which are very much still there to support. How much can Europe do, though, if the U.S. decides, if the House of Representatives were to decide no we're done. Can Europe really pick up the slack of the United States? No. Europe doesn't have the weapons or the the military industry to make up the shortfall if the U.S. drops out. Europe does have the money. And European leaders have, and European parliamentarians have told me directly that they need to replenish their stocks Uh, They need to replenish their stocks and are willing to pay for it. So this is a question not of European resources or political will, but physical possibilities. Combined, the U.S. and Europe together can help Ukraine fight off the Russians and maybe do much better this year than last year. But the U.S. has to get in the game. This doesn't mean U.S. soldiers on the ground. The U.S. play here is to use our resources, the old arsenal of democracy, to help the Ukrainians fight the good fight. And they can succeed. They can succeed in holding off the Russians and taking the fight to the Russians, especially in areas of Ukraine that Russia occupies. But we have got to do our part.
Ambassador, we spoke with uh, Oksana Markarova about the, the dual needs for manpower and weaponry, and she made it clear that the ask for the U.S. here, this is about money for weapons, specifically missiles, even more specifically interceptors. If we gave them everything they wanted and needed in this case, though, where do they find the soldiers to fight the war? Ambassador McCarver really is good, and I think but you, the excerpt of the interview you played shows that. Mm -hmm. The Ukrainians are now debating whether they have to call up more of their young men to fight. That's a decision they're going to have to make. But calling up their young men to fight doesn't do any good if they don't have the weapons. The Ukrainians are beginning to make more of their own weapons, and they're doing so in collaboration with European countries but they need the American weapons. We can provide them. If we do, there is a reasonable chance that the Ukrainians can hold off the Russians on the ground and take the fight to the Russians using longer range, longer range rockets and defend themselves in, in their interior using anti-aircraft systems. There is a reasonable theory of relative Ukrainian success that's available, it's not a long shot, it's a realistic shot, but we have to get off the dime and do what's needed. And by the way, this is not a case of the U.S. supporting a country that doesn't want to fight to save itself. This is a, a case right. of the United States needing to support a country that wants to save itself, that is willing to fight, is not asking us to fight for it, but is fighting yeah. in common cause with us and in the name of European security. This is a good thing. Well, to that exact to point, Ambassador, uh, about it being Ukrainian soldiers fighting so that U.S. soldiers don't have to, that's not necessarily the case if Russia were to attack a NATO country in Article 5 comes into question where the U.S. may have to engage in that case. Denmark's defense minister has said within the last 24 hours he thinks Russia could attack a NATO country within three to five years. Does that timeline seem accurate to you? Does the fate of Ukraine depend on what that timeline might actually look like? Well, the fate of Europe depends on how well we do in helping the Ukrainians fight off Russian aggression. If the Russians, if Putin thinks he can succeed, he might well consider an attack on one of the, one of the U.S. allies in the Baltics to seize some territory and to help take down NATO. This is, Putin is playing a very serious game. We can defeat it. This is not inevitable. But if you listen to the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin, and I've listened yeah. to it all, it is Putin in his triumphalist mood. He thinks he's winning. He thinks history on, is on his side. And it is clear, if you know how to read it, that he will not stop with Ukraine. This is something the Biden administration has pointed out and something many yes, NATO is. countries have pointed out. Putin will not necessarily stop with Ukraine if he thinks the U.S. will not defend Europe and if he thinks that NATO is yeah. a paper tiger. All right, and we will leave it on that note. Thank you so much for joining us today. Daniel Fried, the former ambassador to Poland. We appreciate your time. This is Bloomberg TV and radio. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. That was Joe Biden who said that, not me. Last evening in an emotionally charged news conference, keying off the phrase, Kaylee Lines, in the special counsel's own report, describing him as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. He checked that last part. Yes, he did. And of course, that wasn't the only line that referenced his memory in the special counsel's report. He talked about how his memory was worse in the interviews with the special counsel and his team than it was when he was speaking with his ghostwriter years before that, saying he couldn't recall important years in which he was vice president when his son died. And we know that the death of Bo Biden is a very sensitive subject, of course, Mm -hmm. to the president. And he took specific issue with that last night as well. And so he emerged in a hastily uh, scheduled news conference Pretty late for him as well. Mm -hmm. Some uh, Democrats today, allies of the president, think he should not have done it. Well, and there remains a question, and especially the answering at the very end of questions around the Middle East, in Mm -hmm. which he mistakenly identified uh, Egyptian President al-Sisi as the president of Mexico, another gaffe that is really being clung to this morning as these questions around his memory are just uh, intensifying, or the perception at least that there is an issue here. And on that note, let's assemble our political panel, Rick Davis, is with us. He is Bloomberg Politics contributor and, of course, partner at Stone Court Capital. And Lincoln Mitchell with us as well. He's a political analyst and a lecturer at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. So, Lincoln, just to begin with you, obviously these issues around the perception of Biden's age and mental acuity are not new to just the last 24 hours since this report came out three days ago. NBC ran a poll that showed 62% of people have major concerns about his age uh, and acuity and ability to uh, be president for a second term. There were more than that who said they have at least major or minor or moderate or minor concerns about that. This has been the reality for some time now, and the Democratic Party has only doubled down on Biden as their candidate. Are we going to see that proven out to be a mistake? Well, one way to think about this election is one party is running an old man who was in poor physical health and declining mental facilities. And then the Democrats are nominating Joe Biden, right? So um, both of these candidates are essentially too old. Both are, I think Biden is kind of at a normal state of mental decline for a man his age. I'm not a doctor. I do have elderly relatives, et cetera. And Donald Trump is somebody who has facing much more profound psychological and mental uh, challenges. That seems obvious to me, but I want to make another point here. There's no such thing as the Democratic Party. There's no such thing as the Republican Party. There aren't 12 wise old men and women sitting in a in a blue room somewhere or a red room somewhere making these decisions. Joe Biden is making. But there is a DNC and an RNC. There's a DNC and they are completely powerless in both these situations to do something about it. Ronna McDaniel or Jamie Harrison on the Democratic side can't pound his fist on the table and say, Joe Biden, you can't run. And I want to make another point here. One of the reasons Joe Biden, we hear this a lot. Joe Biden has to run for re-election because Kamala Harris is unpopular. The causality there is wrong. Kamala Harris is unpopular because Joe Biden has to run for re-election. Let me explain. Joe Biden made sure that Kamala Harris would would be unpopular, making it clear she was not part of his inner circle, giving her assignments that were essentially impossible, pushing her aside because had she been as powerful, as popular, sorry, when and now as she was at the time of the election, there would be it would have been tremendous pressure to go for him not to run. 
There's no scenario, there never was, where he gracefully steps aside. Nobody spends 40 years running for president to serve one term. Now, the real problem is that in, in summer of 2019, when Biden announced he was in the race, the best case scenario was that we would be here today because the worst case scenario was that he would have gotten the nomination and lost. So the Democratic leadership, Joe Biden, we've gotten themselves into this position and there's there's no easy way out. And there's certainly yeah. no easy way out now. The only way out is to make the contrast with Donald Trump. If you want to place an opinion piece in an elite media outlet in the United States, you have to write something like Trump. Joe Biden has to talk about his accomplishments and make the argument for a second term. If you actually tell that to Joe Biden as a consultant, that's malpractice. He has to remind people of how dangerous, unhinged, avaricious and authoritarian Donald Trump is. Otherwise, Biden will lose. All right, Rick Davis, you're a specialist on political stagecraft. Should Joe Biden have come out last night or did he just make it worse? Yeah, I'm, I, I keep things simple. Uh, uh, sure, he could have come out last night, but he shouldn't have come out mad. I mean, nobody wants to see an angry old man screaming into the cameras. I mean, that's, that's so depressing. I mean, like, it, regardless of how emotionally he was about being mistreated by this special prosecutor, you know, the people around him need to have the ability to say, absolutely not, until you calm down, you're not going in front of cameras for any reason. I mean, like, hmm. he needs to be the happy warrior, not the angry guy. The angry guy is Donald Trump. Where's that contrast? I mean, I hmm. liked the old man Biden when he was kidding about his age and said that, like, what was it? You know, he looked back on his career of 280 years. Now, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, like, we all want to see him say that, not, like, screaming yeah. at the press because he's been mishandled by the, his own Justice Department. Uh, I got to tell you, I mean, like as a campaign manager, I think I would have been sticking nails in my eyes last night as he did this. And of course, what is his greatest offense? And he's been doing it his entire life. Oh, I'll take one more question. And it's always yeah. a gap. I mean, almost 100 <laughs> percent. It's always the last question. Yeah, it, it's a pretty incredible pattern. Rick, to your point, though, about sometimes he just kind of takes the reality and, and decides to go with it. Think about Bidenomics. It was initially tied to him in a negative way, and they decided to take Bidenomics and try to spin it positive. Dark Brandon, they literally sell merchandise with the aviators and laser eyes now. Can you do that, though, with age and mental acuity when you're 81 and no one can do anything about the fact that you are 81? I mean, what is the way to spin this for this campaign? Yeah, again, I mean, like, first of all, I do like Dark Brandon. So let me just say that I don't consider that angry. <laughs> I consider that entertainment. Uh, and, and again, it's funny, right? I mean, like, why can't he be the happy warrior? Why can't he start every day thinking, wow, this is the greatest day of my life. I'm president of the United States. I've worked my entire career to be in this job, as Lincoln said. And like, I live a dream job. This is this is like a positive thing. Versus, and, and, and the country is a great country for good versus the contrast with Donald Trump, which is I've been robbed, mm -hmm. I've got grievances, the world is horrible, our country is awful. I mean, like, I, I don't know why that isn't just obvious that in a place where 70% of the country doesn't like either one of them, if one's the nice guy who's trying to do good for everyone and the other is painting this dystopian you know, future, then who do you think they're going to pick? It's not that hard to figure out. Lincoln, when we look back now, a lot of people blame uh, James Comey for Hillary Clinton losing the election. We've got a much longer uh, amount of time here between this report and, and when people vote. But if Joe Biden were to lose this election, will her be blamed? 
Well, maybe some will blame him, but there's no reason to blame her if Biden loses this election. I mean, this is we are now in February. The election is about nine months away. There will be some other events in courts, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, between now and the election that will make this seem much less important. If Joe Biden loses this election, my sense is that the person, the main person to blame is Joe Biden. Okay, well, you mentioned events in courts, and there has been at least some buzz about perhaps the reason Nikki Haley is still in the race is because we don't really know whether or not Trump could get convicted of a crime between now and the election or even now and and the convention, what kind of lane of opportunity it may open for someone else to be the Republican nominee. Lincoln, in your mind, is it more likely that Trump won't end up the Republican nominee or that Biden won't end up the Democratic nominee come November? Um, well, we should note that Nikki Haley, there's a saying in politics, you can't beat uh, somebody with nobody. Nikki Haley proved that wrong because she lost Nevada primary two to one to none of the stated candidates, which of course was a Trump <laughs> surrogate. Well, what you're what you're asking me, I'm, I'm a political scientist. I have a PhD in political science. I, much to my mother's chagrin, I never went to medical school. Um, but what you're asking me is a medical question, which is which of these candidates is most likely to have a major health crisis between now and the convention? No. And I just don't know because because barring that, they will be the nominee, each of them in their party. I want to make so I don't know. I mean, I guess if I had to say, I'd say, I don't know, I guess there's a, a one in a hundred chance that Biden steps down and a one in a hundred and one chance that, that Trump doesn't win the primary. One more point. If Trump is not the nominee, Nikki Haley will not be the nominee because in each state that happens, we are seeing slates of Trump electors. And the more of those states that go, those delegates, not, not electors, delegates will then go to the convention. And if Trump says, for whatever reason, doesn't run, they're going to pick a MAGA candidate, not Nikki Haley. So you'll be looking at Don Jr., Tucker Carlson, some other maybe less oh unconventional God. thinking. Nikki Haley, I mean, so so I should confess you, we talked a lot about the Super Bowl. I've been a 49er fan since the mid-1970s because I grew up in San Francisco. <laughs> there, is, there is a chance that, that, that Kyle Shanahan calls me and said, listen, Brock Purdy's got a sore arm. Can you get to Vegas in time to play quarterback? I'm not planning my life around that. And I think Nikki Haley's presidential chances are about the same. Wow, wow, Haley, look what you just started. I didn't mean to. <laughs> uh, Rick and Lincoln, what a great panel. Many thanks to both of you. Rick Davis, uh, Lincoln Mitchell with us here. The panel on Balance of Power on a Friday. It all comes back to the Super Bowl today, doesn't it? It's, everybody's got it on the brain. I understand that. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. With a Super Bowl deadline for senators who are stuck here in Washington to finish their work. As if there was some accountability for what happens here in elected office. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines on Bloomberg TV and radio. The Friday edition of Balance of Power. This brings us back, Kaylee, to the funding bill for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. Whether yes. they can get this cloture vote done before kickoff on Sunday night remains the question. They do well with a deadline. They, that's we the know that. Yeah. And I'm sure for football fans especially, they're really going to feel 
that deadline seriously. It's mm -hmm. just a question of this is the United States Senate we're talking about. In order to move things quickly, you need unanimous consent. Mm -hmm. And Rand Paul, at least, doesn't seem like he wants to move anything quickly. And I wonder if a 49ers Chiefs matchup changes his mind when he's from Kentucky. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, but Chuck Schumer says they won't leave until this is done. There's a, a two-week recess looming as well. Apparently Very true. Going to be taking. Uh, but we'll see if they get their football game in because there will be politics had at the Super Bowl as well. Yeah. Las Vegas is not just going to be a place where people are putting money down to bet on the Chiefs or the 49ers. They also could be putting money down to bet on candidates and who they'd like to see win. Kate Ackley, who reports for Bloomberg Government, has a great story out on this. Uh, you can get it on the Bloomberg Terminal and online as well. Kate, just how many political fundraisers are going to be happening in Las Vegas ahead of the Super Bowl? Well, I don't know if I have a full exact number, and we know that some of the senators may be having to cancel or reschedule theirs. Um, but there oh, are several true. on the books. Yeah, there are several on the books. Um, we know about a few of them for sure. Um, Congressman Steve Horsford, who's from Nevada, of course, is taking this opportunity and has uh, basically an entire weekend of events set up to benefit his leadership pack. And then he is the uh, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and the Congressional Black Caucus pack also has uh, several events happening over this weekend. And then, of course, Californian Eric Swalwell, he's got people he invited, you know, you have to root for the 49ers if you want to go to his fundraiser, because he said, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, who, they're, that's who they're rooting for. Gotta show up in swag. Money. <laughs> yeah. This is just, yep. uh, what, a day after Donald Trump won the Nevada caucus, not to Correct. be confused with the primary that Nikki Haley did not win. Uh, he's got his own hotel there right off the strip. Kate, you surprised he's not doing a big fundraiser showing up at the game? Well, I guess we'll have to see. I mean, maybe he can get something on the books right now. I know one of the fundraisers is happening at Caesars Palace, so a different uh -huh. uh, a different venue. But the, uh, the other group that's out there that's real active this whole week has been the American Gaming Association. Um, which obviously represents casinos and the sports betting industry. And, you know, sports betting has become, um, you know, legal and huge. And uh, many, many uh, millions of Americans are expected to put money down on this game. And so the uh, the sort of gambling industry is also out there doing events and uh, sure. trying to bring attention to what, you know, what that industry has become. Well, speaking of betting, I guess you could place a couple bets on what's going to happen in the Senate this weekend as well. You could bet the spread, how many votes will actually ultimately pass a supplemental <laughs> or not. You could you could bet whether or not it's actually just going to pass. Keep it a simple where do one. I make, where do I place those bets? They Are you should serious? have that. I don't yeah. know if it's like DraftKings or FanDuel or Absolutely. the Washington Get on version. Board. But, right. uh, Kate, if you had to place a bet on whether or not a supplemental package can pass the Senate in the next two days before the Super Bowl, Ooh. what are the odds? On the spot. Well, I am not a betting person. <laughs> uh, Fair especially enough. Especially when it comes to the Senate. <laughs> I, think I, I think I have a conflict of interest. <laughs> Fair enough. She knows better than that. <laughs> Kate, it's great to see you. Whatever your plans are for the game, I hope you have fun. I think the event at Caesars Palace yeah. is the one. That's the CBC event. That's going to be the party based on uh, the, the looks of the invitation here. Uh, Caesar did not actually live there. Okay. Thank you for, for clarifying that, that little bit of that. information. But when we talk about the Super Bowl, 
bull. This is Bloomberg. We talk a lot about money. We talked a lot about how expensive it is to run ads, like a 30-second ad, something like $7 million. That's right, yeah. I want to talk about something else with Carol and Tim, though, and this relates to money. I Brock Purdy, go starting there. quarterback <laughs> of the 49ers, oh, no. I love you made $870,000 this season. Patrick Mahomes made $44.5 million. I love that you love it's sports crazy. as much as you do and know it. It just like warms my heart. And I really thought what you were going to talk about, because you were talking about betting on politics and others, how many Taylor Swift related bets there are out there because there are a lot I knew you would bring that up there like 89 beginning with 1989 is that how many 1989 I don't know I don't know I'm just just a fan I didn't know I worked with a Swifty over here (laughs) who isn't a Swifty Carol come on it's like how many times you're gonna see her during the game during the MVP speech do does she get a shout out assuming Travis Kelsey gets it and they win right I feel like this is putting the cart before the horse Carol we I don't know. know who's going to win. I'm a forward-looking kind of gal. What can we I don't do? even know if Taylor's going to make it She's from Tokyo. She's going to make it. I, I'm, I'm confident well, she'll make it. I'll put money on that. Bet. That's She's the first bet, it. though, right? If I'll you're playing odds, the, first, the, the money is on whether she's going to actually make it to the game. Now, imagine what the entrance is going to be like. Yeah. This yeah, is going to be right? a, a huge motivator. And then the next like a, bet will be whether he it's a parlay. makes the first touchdown. First bet is whether Taylor Swift shows up. <laughs> then it's the number of times that she's shown. Oh, then they, yeah. Travis Kelsey, so, whether or not he shouts her out. You know, you could do. So we're talking about the Super Bowl, guys, as you can guess, and a little bit of Taylor Swift. We're also going to talk about the great CPI revision. I'm going to bring it back to that Bloomberg audience, you know. Got to go there to our (laughs) core. I love that. Leave it to Carol. (laughs) Yeah, I'm guessing prices will not be down at the Super Bowl. Wait, who do you guys want to win? I want to, Kaylee, who do you want to win? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I mean, I would say the Chiefs, but I feel like that's the obvious answer because every millennial is going to want the Chiefs to win. All I can say is... I'm done with the halftime stuff. I want a brass band on the field. That's what's important to me this weekend. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.